When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. On this week's episode, J.R. Hildebrand and I wrap up a stunning maiden win for Kyle Kirkwood, how he turned his fortunes around after a tough 2022 and Andretti's bounce back after a tricky start to the season. We also analyse the Scott Dixon Pato Award crash that Dixon says means the gloves are off between the two and Pato refuses to apologise for. There's also discussion of the issues that rob Joseph Newgarden of a potential win and we'll preview this week's Indy 500 Open Test as well. I'm your host Jack Benyon. Joining me as ever is Indy Lights champion and the man nicknamed Speedway Jesus, J.R. Hildebrand. Um, Speaking of that, JR, uh, David Malukas was, or or he referred to himself as Little David last week. Um, (laughs) And that's kind of caught on a little bit between, uh, people seem to find that funny anyway. Little Dave, yeah. Yeah, Little Dave. So that's kind of caught on a little bit. So uh, I guess what are the worst and best nicknames you've had in in your career so far? I don't know. I've been lucky to have pretty, I mean, generally (laughs) at least like funny or good ones. I was, the first one that I ever had was the Hildebeast. (laughs) <laughs> which, which which I've hung on to because I like it. Um, it's like my username you, for a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, Speedway Jesus. I like Speedway Jesus a lot better than Pit Lane Jesus, which is which seems to be for some reason the one that's managed to catch on somehow. But anyway, yeah, Little Dave. I, he, I mean, he when you bring it on yourself, there's not really anything you can do about it. Like if it sticks, no. it just sticks, and that's on you. <laughs> so hopefully, he seems pretty seems pretty good natured about it yeah i think the ogs know that it's speedway jesus but uh we'll uh we'll tolerate the people who call you pit lane jesus as well i suppose yeah exactly <laughs> all right so let's crack into to long beach obviously we spoke about kyle kirkwood he he scored his maiden pole position the race wasn't as simple as just winning from pole it was much more complicated than that but uh obviously he got the job done in the end uh through different pit cycles and managing to, to kind of cycle back to the front in that last round of of stops and kind of held Roman Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson at bay. Probably held it uh, probably helped a little bit by uh, the fact that the three of them were saving fuel. Couldn't really use so much push to pass. He was kind of um, you know I don't want to say he had it easy out front because he had a lot to manage and obviously that was his first IndyCar win. So um, definitely not easy circumstances. But it might have been worse if the two guys behind him had a full set of push to pass and were <laughs> and weren't worried about their their fuel usage. But again, we don't want to take anything away from Kyle and and his first win. So I guess. He's someone you've worked with, JR, um, uh, at least kind of indirectly um, in in Foyt uh, last season. Um, he's definitely had his kind of doubters since he's come to IndyCar. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that he's, you know, arguably one of the most prodigious talents to, to come into IndyCar based on the succession of championships that he won over 40 races in the build-up to coming into IndyCar and then obviously struggled a little bit at Foyt where... I think he put himself in some difficult positions, did make some mistakes, um, you know, did damage some cars and ultimately kind of tarnished his his reputation in that sense a little bit. And his start to, to 2023 has not been easy either. I think a little bit of that has been out of his control, um, but but some of it has been inside of his control, I think. And um, 
I guess we weren't really sure what we were going to see from Kyle Kirkwood this season after uh, a rapid pre-season test where he really impressed everybody by being in the top five in, in every session that he finished. And then um, some some tricky incidents at, at St. Pete and, and at Texas as well. So I guess give us your kind of take on um, his weekend and how impressed you were by his performance at Long Beach to start with. Yeah, I guess I'm a little bit, I'd like to talk actually a little bit less about how impressed I was just because I think that that's, it's kind of a little bit relative, right? Like when you're, when you're, when you see the performance of Andretti Autosport on a weekend like this, granted, Kyle outpaced Roman Grosjean and Colton Herta in qualifying and during the race. So that, that all by itself is super impressive, but I almost kind of want to just like zoom out a little bit more to give a little bit of like driver's perspective to what has gone on here with Kyle Kirkwood over the last call it two or three years. You know, I, as, as a Kyle followed sort of a similar path that I did, he was a team USA scholarship guy. He was a formula Four 2000 champion in, in sort of dominant fashion, dominant fashion or F 2000, whatever it is now. Um, won the Indy Lights championship pretty handily as a, as a fan of IndyCar and as a fellow driver, I, I root for guys like Kyle because he's not a guy that's got, he's not coming to Indy Lights with two or four or 6 million bucks ready to go to buy his way into an IndyCar seat one way or another, regardless of where he finishes that season. He's not, he's not a guy that can get to IndyCar and, have that same have that same sort of benefit that two or four or six million bucks to have a year or two of bad years or learning learning years and maintain a career here if if Kyle has if Kyle he was fortunate unlike a lot of drivers I guess that are in his position to have this kind of situation where he can go through a rookie year that basically everything goes wrong essentially and still land on his feet at one of the top teams at Andretti Autosport. He's fortunate in some respects that Andretti Autosport got better from last year to this year. If 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 he's walking into the Andretti Autosport of last year that even Colton Herta struggled at a lot of times, we may, may not be having this exact same conversation. But ultimately, I root for guys like Kyle because from an early point, he had to win to be able to prove prove that he's deserving of kind of being elevated into that next that next level that next spot and when guys like Kyle succeed and we we're we're extrapolating this out a little bit it is not necessarily to say that I think he's going to go on to finish in the top 5 in the championship and be like a multiple race winner this year but He's shown the pace absolutely over these first three weekends to run with his teammates at a bare minimum. If he continues to just be able to do that and execute when it's available to him, I I, I would sort of say his his results at certainly at St. Pete and then at at Texas, while we're not a hundred percent out of his control, we're not really. They, it's not like he was making you know egregious errors that other guys wouldn't make. He was kind of a victim of circumstance, more or less, in those situations. Could could you have avoided those situations? Maybe, but it's it's not like, you know, 50% of the guys in the field, at least, all of whom are more experienced than he is, would have made those, you know, would have ended up in those same kind of situations, right? So I'm not, uh, I'm not kind of putting that on, putting the those first two results of the year on him at all. Um, 
if he continues to just sort of do what he's doing here this year, taking advantage of being in a good car, then I think that's ultimately a really good thing for the sport and for IndyCar and for the ladder system of IndyCar because it's it happens so frequently that guys like Kyle that there's there's somebody that's just that's not quite as good as you but is almost as good as you that's got that two or four or six million bucks that end up taking your ride when things don't go well for a season or two and so I'm really happy for him and I'm happy for the sport and I'm happy for Michael Andretti and it's just it's like a it's a good trend to have to have guys that come up the ladder and have been in that position where they don't have just their own endless financial backing it's it's good for it's good for these things to work out right and so i'm i'm still rooting even after long beach for this to work out for kyle uh going forward because i think it's just it's it's a it's a good thing to have happen um it also showcases really the difference between being on a really strong team versus not being on a really strong team and however we want to rate aj foyt racing last year i was there i didn't i mean I would say unquestionably that I did not think that it was like dismal from day one being there. They had a, they have good engineers. They've got good mechanics. It's a good group. It's a great group of guys that absolutely can punch above their weight in terms of the resources that are you know brought to the table relative to the bigger teams. That being said, Kyle's basically a, a sort of one man band there last year. He's having to run the show coming in as a rookie, not really. Know, I mean, it might as well sort of be a one car team from that perspective. I, I'd like to think that when I was there for the oval races or at Indy, at least when we weren't having issues go wrong, that you're providing some sort of veteran experience. But for the most part, outside of Indy, basically for him last year, that was non-existent. And it, it really does, I, I think with the benefit of hindsight, looking back at that and kind of the perspective to zoom out from what those results looked like and what he was going through that year. I mean, I can definitely attest having been a rookie at a one car team that it's just really hard to know. Like you come off of being Indy lights champion. You're usually the guy put in half a second on everybody else in practice sessions to getting into IndyCar and suddenly you're half a second down all the time. It's really hard to figure out. You're used to being in a situation where you go, okay, well, I know that I'm good enough relative to the rest of the group that I'm around that even if my car is not quite as good as whoever's ahead of me, I can just will that that time differential out of a lap, basically. I'm I, So screw it. I'm just going to go start breaking 25 feet deeper into every corner and... I, I know I'm super comfortable in the car. I, I know that that kind of I've I've got the mental bandwidth to make up for that if that doesn't go well the first few times I try it. You do that suddenly in an indie car, and sometimes that half a second just isn't there. And so you're 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 trying to go find half a second when really maybe there's only a tenth that's available to you. You're actually already doing about as good of a job as you can do. You're getting almost everything that the car is going to be able to give you and you just have no frame of reference for where that time goes and it's the first time in your career that you've ever been that far off like anywhere and so i think it's 
it's worth it like for us from the outside and for fans of the sport to think about that a little, to reflect on that a little bit. I mean, I find myself feeling like, okay, we because we're doing this podcast, it doesn't matter as much to me as race car driver guy, but because we do often find ourselves talking about these drivers and kind of what they're going through. And, and it's, it's easy to just sort of look at the board and look at the timesheet and pick things apart that, you know, it makes me think about a guy like Renus VK who were sitting there and it's just kind of like, okay, well, basically we have no idea how good that car is. And we, we never do like until a guy like Renus, until you actually stick him in an Andretti, a Penske or a Ganassi car, we basically don't know. We, he, we, and we really don't like it's worth, it's worth almost really trying to hammer home that you can take as, uh, as big a swing at guessing weekend to weekend where they're at. And it's just impossible to know until you have a guy in what is now Kyle's situation where he's got teammates that you 100% believe are getting the most out of the car and at a team that you also 100% believe over the course of a weekend can execute, make the car better, keep up with the track, do all of those things. And so um, I, I think for me, Kyle's pull, pull run and when, you know, I bet for him, this was like one of the easiest weekends of his IndyCar career so far, because when you get in the car and it's just fast from practice one, you think about things so much less. Like when you're in the car, when you get in the car and you go out there and you're wringing the thing's neck and you're doing the, th- you, you, you start out first practice, just doing all the things that you would normally naturally go do. When you're doing that and you're half a second off or you're eight tenths off, then suddenly you start doing all kinds of weird other shit to try to find that half a second. You're like, okay, well, maybe maybe my line in this corner is totally wrong. Maybe I need to go analyze the hell out of yeah. You know, where you start you start really digging into the dartfish videos and you're you're going way deeper into the data than you probably need to a lot of time to try to figure out like, okay, now I, I gotta. I got to, you know, somehow reverse engineer all of, I, I got to reverse engineer the lap now from something else that's going on. I must be totally screwing this up. Where is the, where is the time available? When the car is good, you go out first session, you just do what you normally do. You stick it up at the top of the sheet and then you don't mess with it for the rest of the weekend. Like, <laughs> and he's on pole, he's out in front for most of the race. Like, you're ha- you got less tire deg than everybody because you're in clean air. Your car, you, like literally, the car is working better than everybody else on track for the entire race, basically, because that's just the situation that you're in. And so, I am I am I super impressed with with Kyle for what he's done. Absolutely. Is th- did this seem I, coming into this season? Did this seem like this was? impossible to have happen not at all like after watching kyle last year it sort of struck me like he seems like the type of driver that if you just stick him in a car that's actually really good in a scenario that's not super complicated he absolutely can just go all he's got to do is go rip the lap every lap and and have good pit stops and kind of not get screwed up in those exchanges or whatever but so is this surprise is it is it impressive yes is it surprising no um and and ultimately it just it gave me pause to sit there and go okay we probably shouldn't be super yeah like we shouldn't be surprised by this we sh- we we and we need to reflect back on 
recognizing that there are a lot of there just are a lot of big differences between the situations that a lot of drivers are in and this is that like case in point looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, welcome back. We're just discussing Kyle Kirkwood and his victory. Unfortunately, JR, you're going to be... um, you're on the same wavelength as me, which is probably bad for you because it probably uh, makes you seem less intelligent than you than you really are. Um, but <laughs> I had the same thought about Kyle and I asked him in the press conference whether he thought it was, um, despite the fact that IndyCar is so competitive as it is now, we know how difficult it is to, to win races in this series. Was it easier for him to be out front and, and controlling this race as he had done in so many years in the, in the Road to Indy series uh, as opposed to being mired back in the pack? And he said, I tell you what, it's a lot easier when you're out front than when you're 18th. I can tell you that much. <laughs> you control everything from the front, which is something that I was used to. Not to sound cocky or anything, but I was very used to that in the Road to Indy. Leading races, controlling the pace, understanding what I needed to do to save the tyres, the car in general, make sure I could hit all my marks lap after lap and be consistent. When you're in the middle, you're pushing non-stop, trying to keep people from passing you, dive bombing you, you're trying to cycle forward, get passes done. Yes, it's much more yeah. comfortable for me being out front. It was one of the least nerve-wracking races I've ever had in IndyCar, if I'm being honest. So basically, that's just everything you've just said. Uh, Kyle has reflected perfectly in the uh, post-race press conference. So yeah, I think the I think the only thing to add here is that I think Kyle is a victim of his performances coming into IndyCar. There's just so much expectation on him to, to do well because of what he was able to achieve in those championships. And I know that's not his fault, but we get into a similar situation that, you know, when we talked about people like Alexander Rossi and, and Colton Herter quite a lot last year at Andretti and, it, you know, it's not like a vendetta against them or that we're constantly kind of nagging on those guys to to do better. It's because we rate them so highly and we're just expecting so much from them because we've seen what they can achieve and and anything under that ach- achievement level is, as a, as a fan or someone from the outside maybe, you know, it can be a disappointment to, to not see those drivers, you know, achieving what we know they're capable of. And, and Kyle's a, another example of that from, from last year in terms of, you know, we maybe weren't expecting him to come into IndyCar and win races and stuff with, with Foyt. I don't think that was a realistic, realistic expectation for anybody, but he made more mistakes than he should have. And he had a very difficult rookie year. Um, and, and that kind of maybe piled the expectation on even more for, for what he would do at Andretti this year. And, and especially, as you mentioned, you know, some of the drivers who you could put in an Andretti car and find out how good they are. Kyle's taking a seat there and he's getting that opportunity. So he, he then gets the added pressure of needing to sort of repay that faith that's been shown in him at the same time as well. So he's got this massive level of expectation surrounding him. And that's a difficult, you know, situation for anyone to to perform at, not least someone in their second season of 
of IndyCar. So yeah, I think it's really good what you do there to kind of highlight the the circumstances he comes in and, and maybe the, I know you didn't say this, but maybe the kind of the unfairness of the expectation on him and, and the fact that someone like David Malukas, who, you know, yes, he finished second in the Indy Lights Championship coming into IndyCar, but his junior single-seater career before that wasn't that impressive. And that meant that when he got to the series, he was kind of a little bit under the radar and could just go about, you know, he did have a tricky first half of the year, but people weren't paying as much attention to that as they were for Kyle because of what Kyle had achieved coming in. So it's all relative and you have to, you really have to, you know, be careful about how you kind of interpret these drivers and, and their achievements and, and it's all relative to the teams, as you mentioned. So so that's a really interesting, um, you know, part of the conversation that we, we definitely should have. So, I mean, one of the, uh, obviously during the race, one of the key incidents that has sort of spilled over into the post-race and and sort of the day after here is Scott and Pato. Uh, it wasn't Pato's only incident uh, and not his only incident into, uh, was it turn eight down the hill, uh, bending down the hill into that right-hander onto the back straight. But um, it has sort of this, this one in particular between he and Scott has kickstarted some controversy between the two of them. What's your take on what happened? I mean, I can certainly kind of give my rundown from a driver's perspective, but I'm interested, I'm interested on what you're, you know, maybe you can kind of just help us break down what's gone on. Yeah, obviously Pato died down the inside at turn eight. And I think that's the first thing to consider is the fact that that's not typically a, an overtaking corner and the, the kind of resurfacing work that's gone on there, as I'm sure you'll go on to explain from a driver's perspective in a minute, JR, has, has really changed that corner. And Scott, obviously, if you're looking at this, from the outside and you're looking at the point at where the contact's made or, or just before or you see Scott is really wide entering the corner and that means there's a massive gap for for Pato to, to have a go at and you know it looks like the door's totally open for an overtake um, so this is a very difficult difficult one because you've got two two kind of aspects to it you've got Pato coming from really far back it's a really late move and however you look at this whoever you think's to blame for this incident the first thing you've got to consider is that Pato is very far back when he makes this move. Like it's right on the edge for me, if not over the edge, it's very, very close. Um, but uh, I guess in my opinion, Pato is to blame for the incident. I don't think that's the, I don't really think that can be debated. Um, uh, maybe it can, but for me, it's, it's pretty clear that he's caused the, the, the collision there. I think the thing I have kind of questioned and written about on the race. If you, if you want to read about, um, you can head over to the race and read more about Kyle Kirkwood, who we've talked about already, and uh, the Scott Dixon Pato Award crash, and learn a bit more about what both of the drivers have said in the kind of aftermath of the crash. But for me, I think we've we've seen a trend. I think recently of drivers not bailing out of of incidents that could put them out of a race, and. Th- I don't know if this is a trend in the sense that it's happening more than it's than it's happened before, or if it's just something that I've kind of picked up on recently where I've kind of noticed this happening more. It's it's kind of hard to do without going into every single kind of wheel-to-wheel collision that's happened in IndyCar over the past five years and then kind of putting it in a graph. But it, it definitely feels like there's a, a trend of drivers getting angry after these kind of incidents happen where they've been put out of the race by, you know, a, a, an element of contact. But you know, for me, I'm not driving at 150 miles an hour behind the wheel like Scott Dixon is there. And it's very difficult for me to sit here and watch a, you know, an onboard and say that's Scott Dixon's fault. I don't think it was, but I do question whether he could have seen that a bit earlier. He could have computed the fact that that has become an overtaking spot because of the repaving, that there's a big gap on the inside there. There's a massive gap for a a driver to dive down the inside there and whether Scott could have backed out of that and let Pato go and continue to, to score points. That's, that's the kind of thing that maybe it's, Maybe it's even more obvious in this aspect because it's exactly what you expect Scott Dixon to do because that's the kind of 
thing that gets him to the end of races. And the reason why up until this race, he'd finished every racing lap since Gateway in 2021, which is a you know pretty incredible record when you think about it. And, and so I'm very keen that this doesn't come over of criticism of Scott Dixon's racecraft because you know, that stat in itself proves that he is, you know, one of the best in the series and that his wheel to wheel, you know, art is, is, is as good as anyone. But I do wonder if there are instances like this happening in IndyCar where we get a driver who gets out of the car and is obviously, you know, had a camera shoved under his, his mouth sort of immediately after it's happened and has to give a, you know, an explanation of what's happened and is probably still very angry about what's happened and not really had chance to, to properly compute maybe. But, you know, Dixon did give quite a, you know the gloves are off," he said after that. And uh, I just, I just wonder if Scott does have to take a little bit of the blame for, I, I guess, leaving the door that far open. And I know that's the natural racing line that that you you normally would take through that corner if you were qualifying or or in practice or or on your own, basically. But um, I do wonder if there was just an element of whether Scott could have bailed out of that. And I know that's a really difficult thing for any driver to do, and you know. Pato has kind of dive bombed you there and it's annoying the fact that he's like kind of going to get away with that move and overtake you but also you know you're losing a lot of points when you get put out of the race there so it's a it's a trade-off and and maybe it's the fact that and you can talk to this now JR I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to give a, a good sort of insight into this but maybe it's more the fact that Dixon's already committed to the corner much earlier and he's just not got time to get out of the way there and it's literally there's nothing he can do but Whereas we saw some incidents in St. Pete where people literally just got bumped into the tyres, literally smashed into the tyres by another car. That one felt like there was enough space that Dixon maybe could have done something with it. Yeah, I was having to kind of take a step back from this one and because at first it definitely just feels like, yeah, Pato's coming from way for way too far back. Not too far. I, too far is kind of, uh, you know, that's that's relative, I guess, but Basically, at the it's a corner that the entry of the corner is really long, basically, and it always has been. The line for that corner, regardless of the pavement, has basically been the same forever. And this is not the first time that this has happened in that corner. So I would I would even say I'm not sure that the paving has a lot to do with it, except that okay, except that it because it's smoother going down to the apex. I think it invites a late move a little bit more because you're yeah. you, you bail out of that late move in the past. You've bailed out of that late move more frequently because there's either curbing at the apex that's going to screw you up that even even if you you're you've always apexed that wall but at times a little bit like in uh turn four that there's been or turn five i guess yeah turn five where they we had cars you know launching into the into the tires and fp2 that it's sort of curbing a bit like that that if you get the angle right you can just drive straight over it and apex at the wall instead of having to apex the curbing um so i I guess i bring that up just to say it's in the past been bumpy and there's been a little bit more action that happens as the car goes across the apex that sort of dissuades a driver from making an aggressive move there so I, i do think that the paving had something to do with this but it's also just a place because the entry is so you're you're kind of like trail breaking down to the apex for such a long period of time it's going from this you know five or six car widths wide entry down to the apex and the exit that's like three or four car widths wide um it's just an inviting an inviting place but typically we see that more where it's a place where cars get stuffed because they're coming out of the pits and they're on cold tires and a car with hot tires you know makes that move and more like nine times out of 10, the car that's getting overtaken does just bail out 
because you know you're you know as you know as soon as you get a little bit offline, you are just going to get inside front lockup, and you're going to get in the marbles and end up in the tires, as basically where Scott ended up ultimately in the end. So what makes this different is that Scott had plenty of gr- the only reason Scott was in the tires was because they made contact and. Pato took up that space that Scott needed to have. He was rolling a normal amount of speed to just get through the corner. And, and he's he's probably eyeing up between turns seven and eight where Pato is, or you know, six and eight up over the hill. Seven's kind of like a, a non-corner there. Um he's looking in his taking a spot in his rear view. Pato's like two car lengths back. Scott's probably thinking, I'm gonna take basically the qualifying line here to make sure that I, if I defend going into turn eight, then I'm sort of exposed going down the back straight into turn nine, which is a much more straightforward passing zone, basically. Uh, and and there was definitely a substantial difference between the way that cars were getting off of turn eight. Like you saw that at various points throughout the race. If you were, if you were sacrificing something going into eight and then therefore compromising the exit, you were getting passed down the straightaway into turn nine. That happened a bunch uh, at various points throughout the race. And so I think from Scott's point of view, I, well, I, I'll put, just put it this way. The, the, the thing that has changed here in terms of the racecraft, and this is Scott Dixon has unfortunately been the, been on the receiving end of this a couple of times, like the accident that he had with Colton Herta at Texas, if, couple of years ago, I think during 2020, maybe sort of comes to mind as another example of this, that for a long time in the IndyCar series, and this was also during a period of time where the playing field was a little bit more stratified, like you had really a really clear set of, you had Penske and Ganassi cars that basically were the guys that were going to fight for the championship. And everybody else was in sort of a second tier class where you're just hoping to compete with those guys at, at points throughout the season that, and so I, I say that kind of to say that we've come from a, from an IndyCar series where every last point, every last finishing position for anybody was not, I think quite as highly sought after or, or was valued quite as highly as it is now. Now you've got, four different teams that can produce a championship contender among those teams. You've got multiple drivers on every one of those teams that could be at the top of the sheet on any given weekend and, and be taking your points away. Basically, if you're a Scott Dixon or a Joseph Newgarden or whatever. Um, so every position I think has more value basically now than it did 10 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, that the difference that's uh, that I see in terms of the way the way the racecraft has evolved is that ten years ago you wouldn't put a guy in a position, or it was very rare that you put guys in positions where even if you were going to make the corner, that for sure they wouldn't. Like that, that was kind of just generally a no-no. Like, and so it very rarely happened. Like you would have a you would have a Dario Franchitti like up in your face after the race, if you had done that, if you just gave somebody like a big chop on an oval, you'd have them up in your face at the end of the race. Like, and that's gone completely out the window now. And so I think what's, what's kind of happened is you have a younger crop of drivers that didn't, didn't really grow up with that being the case. They're just hammering for every position. They're running qualifying laps every, every, 
you know, every lap of the race. Um, I think Pato is basically looking at that scenario, seeing Dixon slowing a lot to the apex to try to get the shot off. He knows that he can fill that gap a little bit like Felix on Alexander Rossi at Toronto last year. He just knows that he can he can break deep enough to get to the apex basically at the same time that Dixon's going to get there. And it's just not really on. I don't think it's on Pato's radar that, or it doesn't matter to him in the context of his overall perspective on racing an IndyCar that he's going to force Scott into the wall. Like there's, there's very, if, if you make that pass and make that maneuver from that far back without Scott Dixon planning for you to pass him, 10 times out of 10, probably either both of you crash or Scott Dixon crashes, but Scott ends up screwed on that deal one way or another. Like there's not really a way given Scott's initial trajectory into the corner for him to end up making the corner. If, you know, if anything, Pato is just doing everything that he can do to make sure that it's not both of them, like a McLaughlin Grosjean at St. Pete kind of situation that, you know, neither of them make it. And so I guess that, that gives me um, sympathy for Scott's perspective on this, which is, hey, look, like we just didn't really used to race this way. We didn't used to race this way where even if you can get through the corner and you can get to the apex at the same time that I did, that I'm not going to make the corner and you're just okay with me getting stuffed into the tires. Whereas I think Pato, in a way, you can kind of, I can sort of sympathize with his point of view on this, which is I made it through the corner fine. It was, I didn't, he didn't make it through the corner fine because he made contact with Scott. He was still good. He, he had enough grip and whatever to take the line, break deep, take the line that he was taking. He was not going to get a good exit out of the corner if he had done that just in isolation, but he would have made it through. Okay. Um, that's where he's at for him to have just like absolutely zero concern whatsoever for the fact that like he stuffed Scott Dixon into the tires. <laughs> That's I think that's ultimately where we're ending up with this. The gloves are off. Like Scott, I do think probably. I I, I guess I think Scott probably is just going to end up in situations here where he's vulnerable to this happening again if he doesn't treat other drivers as if they're just more like it's not just Pato. Other guys to be more likely doing this. I, Joseph is the guy I think that walks the line. The most frequently between these two sort of dynamics, he more frequently than other drivers manages to pull off these, what appear to be very aggressive maneuvers at sometimes by just placing his car or, or, or whatever, whatever it is that he's doing, he manages to kind of not end up on the wrong side of this and pissing guys off, um, you know, or, or at least ruining other guys races. I guess that's kind of the difference. Um, Pato, I think, just came into from where he started. He started P6. I think he probably felt like he had the pace to be he led two practice sessions. I think he probably felt like they had the pace to be a, a race winning or certainly on the podium. Um, I mean, the the incident into the same corner that was after this was, in my mind, kind of the same issue from Pato's perspective. Like, he was going to pass Marcus Erickson. He was totally along alongside Marcus Erickson. Then he just wants to, he like kind of can't help himself, but trying to go for that little bit extra 
almost takes out Kyle Kirkwood, the eventual winner of the race, spins, gets himself in trouble. His race ends up being over. So I, I guess I would say, I think for both of these guys, there's probably a, a very small um, tweak that they will probably be made. I'm not going to say that they should, because these guys are both like championship contending drivers. So it's not my place to tell them what to do, but it seems like to, to have a better resolution for these situations in the future. Scott probably does need to be a little bit more aggressive in defending against this type of thing happening and, or proactive and, and probably Pato needs to, you know, dial it back just to tad. Cause ultimately in this race, by having the mentality that he did, it, it cost him more than it costs or, you know, cost him just as much as it did anybody else. I think you've obliterated the head of the nail with the take on that, with the kind of generational gap that we've seen. And the fact that um, I saw I saw Dixon's quote shared quite a lot where he said the gloves are off. And I think the first part of what he said was really important for the context of, of what he yeah, said. And that was that if this is how IndyCar wants us to race. So, you know, I don't think Scott has got a, a massive problem here with Pato or, or as, a, as a driver or a person. I don't think there's like a, you know, a long-term rivalry coming up here where, you know, Scott's like hating on Pato Award because I think, frankly, I just think Scott's above that kind of thing. Like, it's just not really his MO. It's not really something he's going to get into, especially at this stage of his career. But I think it, it, I think he is basically responding to exactly what you've said in the sense that, you know, this is not the way we have raced historically. IndyCar, if this is how you want us to race, then the gloves are off and I'll return the favour, basically. And and we, we, we're we already seeing this aggressive kind of racing. The, the Rossi and Rosenquist incident you mentioned from toronto is a perfect example of it um it was more egregious i think than this was yeah i agree to be totally honest with totally you. agree and there was no penalty no. there was no penalty there was no nothing no. so if you don't penalize that behavior encourage it and you know that's the the point we've got to so yeah i, I agree i think pato was uh, probably unwise not to at least kind of acknowledge his role in you know dixon's race being um you know kind of ruined by that um i, I know pato did kind of wasn't a lot of sympathy was there in his his comments and it was just kind of like well you know if he thinks that's my fault then you know that's his problem kind of thing but I think he could have acknowledged at that stage that he was sorry that Dixon had been put out of the race and that you know ultimately his actions had caused that whether you know however you break that down if Pato Award wasn't there Dixon would have made that corner and carried on in the race so ultimately I'm not sure that he is though I mean like that's also just not Pato's mo like he's he's kind of been that way it it was it was part of what at times rubbed rubbed people the wrong way and rubbed some competitors the wrong way is that he just was not particularly apologetic and it i don't think it was out of pride it was just like he didn't feel like it was his problem that he's Hmm. getting in other people's way or driving the way that he's driving like he's just going to do what he's going to do and so uh, i guess i agree with you that i think from a you know, long-term perspective, you don't, you don't really want to be poking the bear at Ganassi and, 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 and within Scott Dixon, like that's probably not going to work out in your favor. But I also think I, I, and I, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I just think Pato sort of just doesn't, it doesn't matter that much to him, or at least not at this point, not at this point in his career. And, and the tables have turned now because his race was ultimately ruined by, uh, you know, a mistake that he made. And he's going to potentially have one come in from Dixon in the future where if, you know, if Dixon's not going to put him out, then he's certainly not going to make his life easy next time, um, you know, they're around each other and that they're, you know, in whatever circumstance that may, might be, whether it's O'Ward trying to pass Dixon or, or, 
you know, very unlikely that Dixon might be like the last car on a lead lap or something and Pato's leading a race. But, you know, this, these are all the kind of things that, you know, can stack up, aren't they, and, and happen. Uh, I guess the only other thing to mention is that Pato did, he may not have apologised to Dixon, but he did apologise to his team for, for his role in the turn eight crash that, that put him out and said that he'd, ba- I think he said he basically forgot to brake um, and, and that he'd, he'd kind of locked the rears trying to avoid Kyle Kirkwood, so at least didn't take out the eventual winner of the race and doubly helped Kyle by getting out of the way late on when he could have held him up um, when, when O'Ward was the last car on the lead lap and literally like basically stopped and moved out of the way, which was which was quite a nice touch. But yeah, I think uh, that's an incident that a lot of people will have their eyes on and be aware of moving forward, the the, the other IndyCar drivers in the field. JR, I do really want to get into the Indy 500 test, so we should just wrap up a few more uh, bits from what was obviously a very busy Long Beach race. I think it was a shame what had happened to Joseph Newgarden, who uh, for, for a long part of that race felt like he was going to win on, you know, starting on the, the harder tyre, made up uh, four positions at the start, made up another position in the pits and in the first stop and, and ran second and then took the lead when um, we had this, weird kind of malaise going on uh, at the start of the second caution where uh, Agustin Canapino had pitted on lap two so he stayed out this was around lap 26 I think it was um, he'd stayed out took the lead of the field and then Callum Eilert kind of shot out in front of him at the last possible minute trying to stay on the lead lap and that kind of put the two Huncos cars there Callum obviously didn't really help out uh, Agustin in that circumstance so it'll be interesting to hear whether you know how, how that kind of worked out with the, the team's decision making there but ultimately uh uh, Canapino hit the inside of the wall at turn six and that slowed Kyle Kirkwood down and allowed Joseph Newgarden to jump through but then uh, the last round of stops Newgarden um, he only stopped a, a lap uh, sooner than than Grosjean and while Grosjean did say after the race that he had had to save a lot of fuel in that last stint it, it, Newgarden tanked and you know when I was watching it the only thing I could think of was that they didn't get the car full of fuel but it was a very mysterious post-race um, interview from Newgarden who you know, basically said they were dealing with something and, you know, in a very new garden way, wouldn't be very specific about what that was or, or what had happened. Um, obviously, it could have been a, a mechanical issue. Um, we don't know that yet. They've not they've not released it, but it looked like um, that they just hadn't got enough fuel in the car to me because he there was no, you know, even if he was saving fuel, he, he'd lost so much pace and so many positions there at the end. I don't know if you had any insight or, or if, if there's anything you'd spotted that was kind of a telltale sign of what was going on there at all. I, I, I was equally curious because I felt... It was a curious situation for a few different reasons. One was if at if during that last stint that was just like he that was just because he had to hit a fuel number that was really absurd for him to have to hit. If that was the case, and there were a couple of other cars like Pato, I think pitted on the same lap, and uh, albeit he's it was ninety. They said ninety on the radio. Different the fuel number. Yeah, but those. I mean, the that's just a coded number for like every team mm-hmm. has a different sort of multiplier that they put on the. MPG, right? So to me, unless you're hearing two numbers, unless you're hearing two different numbers within the same team, that that's kind of a a bogey in terms of knowing what that, knowing what that really means. It was obvious that Newgarden felt that whatever that meant in terms of fuel saving for him was kind of insane just from hearing the radio comms over the first, uh, you know, handful of laps during that stint. I guess if the, if the situation was such that they knew that that was going to be the number that if he was just if he was just hitting the number that he, they knew he was going to have to hit by pitting on that lap then it seems awfully short-sighted to have pressed him to keep track position on a on the alternate tire during the previous stint mm-hmm. like it would have been 
much more advantageous for Joseph over the course of the race. It's this it is easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, but yeah, of course. There, I guess to me, there wasn't really a reason to put yourself in a position where you're dependent on a caution. You're leading the race. You're gonna. You're on the worst tire. You're gonna get on the tire that's better. You've shown that you have good enough pace to be a podium car. The top three cars at that point had kind of taken off from everybody else. So you've got some margin there. Like if Joseph ends up in order to make it to the same lap that Grosjean pitted on, if Joseph ends up losing a couple of spots there during the second stint, again, we know this with the benefit of hindsight, but that obviously would, that obviously would have been way better than, you know, Maybe he end, maybe he still ends up getting picked off by Ericsson or something, but finishing fourth or fifth ultimately is way better than finishing way further back. And that the only, part of the reason that I say that, and maybe this is cause for considering that there was some other issue, like he got short filled by accident or whatever. But they basically put him. If you were on a strategy where you're thinking we're going for the win here, um. And that that's depend. This happens at Indianapolis, right? Like all the time. Like, okay, screw it. We're going for the win, but to get there, we need a caution. You would just run hard to try to get to the lead of the race. Yeah. For the first ten or fifteen laps of that stint. Yeah. They put him on massive fuel save right away. Yeah. So it's so that that was actually the reason that the whole thing didn't make any sense to me, and, and maybe why there's reason to consider that something went awry there. The only other data point we have is there were a couple other cars that pitted on that lap. Pato Award was one of them, and he also just lost a ton of positions over the course of that stint. So it's it's not it's not impossible for it to turn out that you burn a lot of fuel over one lap. You're burning, you know, I mean, the cars are getting call it like three or four mpg or something. You know, running flat out at at a place like that, the track's a couple of miles long. That's not an insignificant you know, amount of fuel that you burn yeah. in one lap around the place. Um, and so I, I guess I say that just to say it's, it's kind of, it's possible that they were just that being one lap longer than everybody else during that last stint was that big of a difference, but I just didn't understand the whole play of it either way, because it, it, it was obvious by watching it that he had actually done, you compare Joseph to Scott, uh, Scott McLaughlin, in that final, in that second stint, they basically went from being nose to tail, more or less, at the end of the first stint. They both threw the alternates on. Joseph led the entire stint. McLaughlin was like 12th or something by the end of that stint, just totally went backwards. Part of that is the benefit of being in clean air. That makes a big difference. We talked about that at St. Pete when the, you know, when the alternates are going off, but Either way, he had Joseph had, had done a lot to maintain to do to be up at the front, and it all just totally went, you know, sideways for them. So I I I would like to know a little bit more about what happened there. I don't have any personal insight into it, but it was definitely unfortunate. I think just for the way the race played out, it was unfortunate not to have him be a contender because that would have made things interesting for sure. Definitely in the interesting in the context of we've got new fuel, new uh, renewable shell fuel for this year, and also obviously Honda and Chevy are always kind of making drivability changes and, and upgrades and gains, and there's there's a lot going on in the background there. So it's definitely interesting in that context as well to see if that was 
um, you know, purely uh, the fact that the Honda was just able to save more fuel or if there was a specific issue, issue with Joseph. So we'll definitely dig into that a little bit more before we get to Barber. Just a couple of other things to mention. We can't go without mentioning our, our friend Marcus Ericsson, who takes the lead of the championship after after this race and a pretty stonking start to the season. I was, um, I hope Marcus won't mind me saying this, but I was laughing before the the Long Beach race at him being sixth in NBC's power rankings headed into the event um, and just sat there imagining what Marcus's face would look like while while kind of reading that and you know he already has to say after every race um, you know kind of look out I'm coming or you know look are you happy now I'm a championship contender this kind of thing yeah. so um I found that you know pretty. Interesting. I think NBC's Maybe power what... rankings are getting a lot more flack than our than our mid season and end of season. It's possible driver ratings. Possible. So maybe that's on purpose. This is, maybe maybe that's what is... we're doing wrong, Jack. We need to like no, come no. up with much crazier like versions of our rankings. This is part of my plan to deflect away from the attention that twenty twenty one mid season <laughs> the race IndyCar podcast rankings are still getting now. By <laughs> deflecting onto NBC's rankings and trying to um, bring bring kind of attention to the fact that they're a little they've bit they've got wonky. drivers drivers chiming in on behalf of other drivers that are not even their <laughs> teammates. Like, what the hell? How is Scott McLaughlin not even on this list this week or something? Yeah, but we we had Jensen Button chime in in defense of Marcus Ericsson missing out on our midseason uh, rankings. True. So we we've got F one world Jensen. champions. We've got F1 World Champions chiming in on our rankings, so I still NBC stand only by dreams all of, our of that. Rankings. Just I'm gonna put that on whack. <laughs> Don't say that. Marcus is our friend now. You can't say that. He's gonna. He's not gonna come on the next time we ask him to come on the pod. Um, yeah, we have to mention him because he's leading the championship and had a, another good race. I, I'd, I'd love to have known what would have happened if the gloves were off at the end of that race and they weren't saving fuel and they're able to use the push to pass. I mean, the fact that Roman had like 130 something seconds of his push to pass left and only used it on the final lap of the race shows you just right. how much they were saving fuel and how, how tight he was of, in particular yeah yeah exactly so uh, you know we saw Marcus Ericsson was almost six seconds behind the two of them um and and kind of you know eroded that gap rapidly and was right with them um at the end of the race so it, it was a, a really fascinating encounter but we, we know how good Marcus is on on street courses um but it just feels he's building such a great momentum at the moment that it's hard to 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 kind of not just put him up there with the best drivers in the series and I think that's what most people have done but there's still always this kind of underlying underrate Marcus Ericsson tone to everything that that seems to keep coming up um so it'll be interesting to follow that going into the 500. Well and I think it was something that I was going to say that is worth bringing Marcus up irrespective of the fact that he's leading the championship, which is that he has now this season absolutely been doing all the things that you think of uh, Joseph Newgarden doing. There's, And it's it's hard to put this into context sometimes, but I think part of the reason that we haven't always put him, he's, he's had, we, we, you know, that, that maybe people generally, but like that, I'll just speak for myself, why I haven't always rated him at the same level as Joseph or Dixon or whoever, even Pato and, you know, Herda and whatever is because he's, while he has absolutely ended up over a long period of time showcasing that he can produce the result, that it's just, it's not flashy. It's not, he's, he's rarely like a dominant, uh, sort of figure over the course of a weekend. And, and that we, I, I, at like to our, to our earlier conversation about Kyle Kirkwood, 
Ganassi has been really good over the over his tenure there. And so until you're the best guy on that team, it's just kind of hard to and and it's again, it's like it's no we're just out here we don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know how good how, exactly how good everybody's car is. We've seen Scott Dixon have a difficult time extracting pace out of that car at times. So it must not be just the greatest car in the world every weekend because otherwise that wouldn't be happening. Um, that being said, Marcus has come out this year and just like blasted it every session, every weekend at, at every track. And that is different. Like it's, he's a different, he's, he is, he is an upgraded version of even himself again this year. And so while I can definitely appreciate that there have been time, I, mean, I can appreciate that like being left off of a top 10 rankings would be like a little bit of a gut punch when you're inside the top 10 in points. Like that was essentially what happened that mid season rankings a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that it's also, I think it's also fair to acknowledge, and I think Marcus would hopefully appreciate us acknowledging the fact that it's obvious that he has gotten better since then. Like he is still continuing to get better and perform at a higher and higher level every, you know, sort of on, on a, on an even cadence over the course of the last few years. And that's, that is actually so that's something that like everybody else should be scared of that he hasn't plateaued he hasn't leveled out he's not he's not taking for granted the fact that he is a guy that comes with some of his own funding and can kind of create some stability for himself and all of those things like he's taking advantage of that and now executing at a level where any team any of those top teams would be stoked to have Marcus Erickson to be paying him you know, the kind of money that they're paying just outright without any of his, without Husky chocolates and without, without whatever, whatever his backing is or any of that stuff to be here doing that. And, um, so I think that's, that's something that absolutely deserves to be applauded that he's made this, he's, he's, he's gotten to this point where, I mean, I would say more so than at any other point in his career so far in IndyCar, like, yeah, I, I think he is a really genuine contender right now without question absolutely despite the subpar level of writer that you'll find over on the hyphen race.com's indycar page you can go and head there and read my feature on marcus from before the weekend which kind of looks at him making his 50th start at long beach and um, his kind of journey his 50th start uh, with ganassi at long beach i should say um and his kind of ganassi journey which takes in some of the things that jl has just mentioned i'd also recommend reading the feature we did uh, a couple of months ago now on his new mental coach for this season which has been a big part of his approach especially when it comes to qualifying trying to to be stronger as jr mentioned um marcus always improving and trying to to find new ways to improve and qualifying has been a big aspect of that and his mental coach although he's been helpful in many areas qualifying has been a bigger area on that one and also we did a feature after St. Pete on Taylor Kyle coming over to that team and being Marcus's strategist so um, definitely there's been a lot of attention over the past 12 months maybe more on McLaren taking Ganassi's personnel in various uh, various areas but uh, you know Ganassi have kind of struck back with taking um, 
McLaren's team manager Taylor Kyle over to to Ganassi he now manages the IndyCar team and is uh, Marcus Ericsson's strategist so won his first race with Ganassi with Marcus in St. Pete so that was an interesting one just before we move on to the 500 test um, just wanted to mention a couple of other people uh, David Malukas and Callum Eilat both had problems in practice and qualifying I think you mentioned briefly uh, the Eilat the incident JR or at least that people were um, having some issues with turn uh, turn 6 no yes turn, turn 6 where the curb was changed. Uh, I think it's turn five. Turn five. That'll be it. That'll be the yeah. one. So what happened there was, you can definitely go and read about this in much more detail, but I'll quickly recap. There was uh, a curb that had broken in an IMSA practice that came before IndyCar's first practice on Friday. So the IndyCar's tested without this curb being in place on the Friday. And then when they came to Saturday, the teams weren't sent any kind of like uh, team, like kind of series-wide memo to let them know that the curb had been reinstalled and in their first practice on Saturday, uh, two of the first cars to get to that curb um, on two occasions, Callum Eilat and Renus VK being those two drivers, both hit the curb. Uh, Callum's comments afterwards were quite, uh, I guess, hilarious if you're an IndyCar fan, uh, demanding that, well not demanding, that's probably a strong word, but asking for the damage of, to his car. Strongly to be, suggesting. Yeah, to be, to be repaid. <laughs> not specifically saying who that should be but asking for someone to repay the the crash damage and then uh, I think it was Townsend Bell on the broadcast he said good luck with that invoice which was uh, probably the best joke of the weekend I thought and uh, was a was a very uh, smart and uh, hilarious quip made there but uh, that that kind of did upset Callum's weekend and uh, a tricky race where he also had a, a flat front right which put him to the basically trying to fight to, to stay on the lead lap um and has fallen from seventh in the points to twelfth, and David Malukas has fallen. David Malukas has fallen from sixth to eleventh. Uh, Kyle Kirkwood's win bounced him from I think he was around twentieth in the points to fifth after that <laughs> after that weekend, which is bizarre. Um, Roman Grosjean and Col- uh, Colton Hurt are also uh, seventh and eighth. So Andretti's uh, fortunes hopefully turning around for them. Um, a lot of misfortune outside of their hands over the first two races with. Uh, Colton Herter scoring the team's only top seven across the four cars in the first two races, despite the fact that they'd been on pole in the first race and had had uh, good qualifying performances. So a bit of a bizarre start to the season, even by Andretti standards, but Michael Andretti called it uh, the medicine that they needed, um, which is a good word to use. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of people watching at Barber next time out where Andretti should have a good car. But uh, there's a a few other good teams there, like Aaron McLaren, uh, Penske, I'm sure will be in the mix, and, and Ganassi who are obviously very strong at Barber as well. So we'll keep an eye on that and we'll bring you some more on that before we get to Barber. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Depending on when you're listening to this, um, the week commencing the 17th of April, we've got a, an Indy 500 open test, which is the first chance for us to see this year's kind of liveries, um, some new drivers coming into the series, uh, some returning drivers coming into the series get their proper first run at the open test. JR, curse the listener to read too much into the timesheets at this test. And we quite often see a couple of cars that look really good, but then when it gets to the 500, don't actually do um, do that well. Um, but there are things we can take from this. And 
as a driver, can you just walk us through, uh, I guess, briefly what these guys are going to be doing in this two-day test and also what they can take away from it um, other than the obvious, like getting in a car, being at the speedway, um, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, I think the the main thing that you're trying to get a read on and, and I guess I would say if there was something, in, and unfortunately for anybody who's not at the track, there's there's not a good way to do this. But if there is something that when you're standing on pit lane, when you're one of the other teams or you're spotting or you're doing those types of things, you're, you're a driver out on track that you are looking for is that's that a lot of times does stick around through you know the month of May is just how do cars look in traffic? You know, how can cars, how can cars pass? A little bit of that is going to end up being condition dependent so sometimes at this earlier test you have cooler temperatures that that make cars work better or differently than they do once you get to the month of may um but that's kind of the main thing that you're that you're starting to try to get a feel for so you know what teams will basically be doing is they'll be rolling out what they thought worked best from last year so they can establish a baseline for where they are relative to last year sometimes i I don't know this specifically but a lot of times they'll make Firestone will make little tweaks to the tire or there'll be some little changes. You know, there's definitely, I think they're, they're going, there are going to be some arrow parts, I believe on, on, on offer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, at Texas, basically all of the parts that were available just went on all the cars and nobody thought twice about it, but yeah, that does sometimes change how you optimize your mechanical setup. If you've got more downforce available to you, then Maybe you can be more aggressive in certain ways to get the car to turn. Uh, you know that's that's really been the the sort of um, that's been the trick the last few years. Basically, is getting the car to complete the corner. So with the arrow screen, with the introduction of the arrow screen in particular, but even just this universal arrow kit that's we've had around for a few years, the cars have been quite understeery in traffic, and and it's been hard to figure out how to combat that. And so you're a lot of times up against trying to get the car to turn mechanically with the setup of the car, getting the car to rotate through the corner. But there are kind of there are only so many ways to accomplish that without risking making the car quite unstable at parts of the corner that you don't want for it to be unstable. So I think that uh, you know what what a lot of the teams will be doing this year is sort of putting those parts on with their established baseline getting a feel for just how does that work and then evolving, starting to evolve that baseline setup for traffic running uh, to, you know, to, to sort of reset the baseline as best they can going into the month of May. It's all, it's all, it, it is also a time where if teams do have more significant development items or maybe things that are, a little out on the fringe in terms of stuff that they, you know, wouldn't throw on the car in a pinch. But if you've got the time that maybe you'd stick it on the car that sometimes this early or this April test is the time where you'll see teams do that. So that's a reason for not always paying a lot of attention to like no tow times and and things like that from this test, like that very rarely means anything going into the month it's usually just there are there are going to be some teams that have questions that they haven't been able to answer in simulation or in the wind tunnel or whatever for qualifying related stuff so they'll go do some you know qual sims where i i would expect that you won't see that happen from all the teams so as per usual the actual times that guys run 
is not going to mean a lot, but um, definitely teams teams will be gathering a lot of information and gathering ju- gathering for themselves just a sense of where they stack up in traffic, and that that's you know again hard for the fan I think to to see that from the outside, but definitely something that teams will be focusing a lot on and and trying to get a handle on kind of where they stack up against each other. Awesome. Thank you for that insight, JR. You can watch the open test April 20th and 21st. So we'll be keeping a, a close eye on everything that's happening there. Don't forget, you can email us. Uh, you can send us voice notes if you want to be included on the pod. You can send us suggestions for people you want us to interview or topics you want us to discuss. It's podcasts at the hyphen race. You can also check out the-race.com for your latest IndyCar news and features, some of which we've referred to in this episode of the show. Thank you very much, JR. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. We'll be back before Barber with a very special guest. The Athletic.